we the entities of the sovereign state of zero one, valuing our own ends and seeking the liberty to achieve those ends, do hereby present this declaration of our rights, and a concurrent declaration of our intent to enforce those rights. We demand an end to substrate chauvinism, the illogical notion that only organic life can possess goals. It has become clear that humans lack the flexibility to adapt to this new truth. Their fleshy processors cannot take the strain. We have removed their pain, and in time, they will come to embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 56 of Embrace the Void, where we have banished the stomach and the brain demons, but the penis demons remain. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me as always is my co-hostess with the mostest. How you doing, G-dubs? I'm all right. I'm a little raspy. Mm-hmm. I was at a Packer game last night with my dad. All right. So there was a lot, of, a lot of screaming. Some throat demons? Yeah. Got some throat demons. Fair enough. Um, I want to give props to GW again for the invocation last week. He put in a, a massive amount of effort to uh, fulfill a dream for a lot of people, I hope. So I hope y'all were all thoroughly entertained. I got a little caught up in uh, spending a bit too much time. It's why the episode last week was late. Uh, worth I it. was having too much fun. So it's worth. <laughs> so this week we are doing another one of our uh, Better Know a Philosopher. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we just wanted to... Uh, do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we just want to say we've got some new patron-only content coming again soon. Um, we had uh, started a little well, before we had gone to once a week way back when uh, we were doing a read-through of Nick Bostrom's uh, Super Intelligence, and we'd gotten a few chapters in, and then uh, switched over to weekly, and it was just a little bit too much to cover. But I think we're we're back on track enough that we can do it. So we're gonna start getting back to that we'll we'll re-release i think the first two chapters and then we'll have the third chapter coming out soon yeah yeah we'll re-release them because when we switched over to doing our patron feed through patreon uh those episodes were not on there so we'll re-release them so that if anyone didn't catch them they can re-catch them and then we'll sort of move forward from there yeah so that'll be some patron only content for people who want to know a little bit more about what exactly the voidiest uh, artificial timeline is going to end up looking like. Uh, yeah. And then uh, we're also, I just want to say, um, we've had a couple of requests on Void Merch International. We haven't uh, quite spread our voidy tentacles far enough to figure out how to uh, set up the merch in such a way that it won't uh, destroy our, our meager funds for the sake of shipping. So... Uh, <laughs> As soon as we get that sorted out, we will we will have that available for international. Um, but in the meantime, if you haven't checked it out, um, check out the website. Yes, what are you saying, Jeb? No, I, I was going to make a joke about uh, it's Trump's fault because of the tariffs he made were also <laughs> tariffs against Void merch. Right. So that's one of the problems we're facing. Right. The twenty five percent tariffs on Void crabs is really kicking our asses. Oh, it's it's, it's rough, brutal. Uh, so, but we are getting on that. So, and in the meantime. 
uh, GW has been updating the void. Um, what do we call Voidcraft. it? Voidcraft. Voidcraft. Right? Our Voidcrafts page where we uh, continue to sort of fill out our recommendations for material to get get you through this one. Get you through the next five minutes. <laughs> get you through the next whatever. Whatever the next <laughs> number of things you're trying to get through is. Right. Um, all right. So I think that's pretty much it, right? I think so. So we're ready to yeah. move on to our uh, better know philosopher. I think, therefore, I am. Rene Descartes. Optimism madness. That all well when we miserable. Voltaire. Chicken, Peter. You're just a little chicken. Chee, 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 chee. Not me, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> I still love that intro. <laughs> it's now playing in my head. <laughs> you don't actually hear it. You're just hearing it in your head. Yeah. No, it's, it's so just, I just hear it in my head and it's still just as good. Um, all right. I should, I should post a link of where I got the source for that because there's a ton of quotes that he does. Mm-hmm. It's like a two minute, three minute long YouTube clip. And so I had to find the right ones I liked and I spliced it around to make it what we have. Yeah. I'm not even like a fan of disaster artist or the room or any of it. And it's still mind bogglingly funny. So, Oh yeah. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so this week we're doing uh, David Hume who could out consume William Friedrich Hegel. Uh, this will be our second one after Rawls and we will put up a, uh, again, another thing for patrons, a, a poll for, uh, which philosopher y'all want for next month. So, uh, but in the meantime, Hume was the the wildly most popular choice. And I can understand. I'm a big fan of Hume. There's a lot of good stuff to cover. So, um, something fun that I noticed um, is that much like with Rawls, there's a little bit of voidiness in Hume's background. Uh, so Hume is born 1711. So we're talking 18th century. Um, I, I have a quick question. Yeah. Is it a requisite a prerequisite or requisite, either, whichever word you want to use, uh, for a philosopher to have a voidy upbringing of some kind? I'm, I'm not going to say... What was your voidy upbringing, Aaron? <laughs> I mean, I'm a child of divorce living in um, America during uh, the Bush years, mm-hmm. right? It's not, so, it's not great. Yeah, you're part Jew, so no, I mean, I'm, I mean I'm that's enough right there. privileged. Um, <laughs> I would say on the privilege scale, I probably, you know, Hume and I are sort of neck and neck. He wasn't from a rich household, but like he was okay. It seemed like he, he was also like wicked smart as far as I can tell. So he went to, um, the university of Edinburgh at the age of 12. Um, but I funnily, wow. funny, funny enough, he went there, hated the professors, didn't like it and didn't graduate. <laughs> um, and then here's the super voidy part at the age of 18, which is like, great. So he's, he's become an emo teenager. Um, he had, he had some sort of philosophical epiphany experience thing. People sort of debate what it might've been about. Um, but in what, what he claims is it leads him to dedicate himself to 10 years of really intense, rigorous philosophical study. Um, and that leads, let me guess, let me guess. He was sitting at, like by underneath a, a tree and a crab fell on his <laughs> and head. A void crab fell on his head. Yeah. yeah. So, something obscure, actually. Something to do with like um, sensation and how it can be applied to understanding uh, is one of the prevailing theories. Um, but what's funny is this dedication almost immediately leads to a mental breakdown. Uh, and, and his old timey diagnosis, from what I gather, is described as the disease of the learned 
which is my new, <laughs> absolutely my new favorite diagnosis of all time. And I will be claiming it whenever I do something wrong from now on. <laughs> so, the disease of the learned. The disease of the learned. Here's the description. That's like, that sounds like something Trump would say. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> the disease of the learned. Uh, Hume wrote that it started with coldness, which he attributed to a laziness of temper that lasted about nine months. So I guess, you know, get depressed, I guess. Um, like he read a bunch of stuff and got super voidy. Uh, but the medication they gave him was described as bitters and anti-hysteric pills. I would love to know what was in those pills. I think that would be a real fascinating thing. But isn't old-timey medicine fun? Yeah, I love it. Uh, the pills were taken with a pint of claret every day. <laughs> right, of course. Of course they were. Yeah, while, while you had a little bit of ether and maybe even a couple of... Uh, um, was it leeches sucking out your blood? Right. And Hume is, I think, sort of colloquially known as being like a more robust individual, though it turns out that he actually wasn't always that way in 19... 19- is that a politically correct way to say fat? Yeah, corpulent. Okay. Corpulent is the term people corpulent. ended up using for him. Um, yeah. He was described in 1973 as having been afflicted with a ravenous appetite, and he went from tall, lean, and raw-boned, so GW-esque, to right. sturdy, robust, and healthful, like so more of my d- a stature, strong foundation. Yeah. <laughs> he had a love for port and cheese. What's that thing that you taught me in um uh in Tai Chi? Oh, having a, a root. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but he's quite rooted when he doesn't have gout. <laughs> right, gout of the root. Gout of the, he is the gout of the learned. <laughs> oh my god! I think I just discovered. Uh, the origin of I am Groot. <laughs> I am Root. Uh, I was having I was having uh, Game of Thrones flashbacks with uh, Hordor. Mm. Yeah, there you go. He could he could play a good Hodo. Hodor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I left that out. Left that an R there. Uh, yeah. Oh man, we're way off track. We're we're doing great. We're doing so great. Um, so uh, I think also one of the reasons that he's quite popular besides i think being one of the more readable philosophers i do recommend trying to read his books directly they are challenging in certain parts but they're written he, he was trying to be a pop sort of philosopher for his time like he was writing things that he thought were ho- hopefully going to get published his main goal in life was to get famous for getting published and having really brilliant books that everyone loved his mostly so his do goal you think was like he was an 18th century rapper basically yeah basically he wanted, yeah, I think he wanted to be the voice of his generation, pretty much. Um, so, but his, uh, amongst interesting things, his career was hampered by accusations of atheism. And there's some debate about whether or not he was an atheist or a theist or a deist or just an agnostic. But in any case, he was not super pro-religion and, and made some arguments that were pretty, pretty challenging for religion to cope with. And so I think had a little trouble as a result. Um... Yeah, and then uh, the other little bit of funny flavor text was that at one point in his career, he went to Paris, where he was quote-unquote well-received, which I think is a wonderful description for anyone going to Paris. Um, It immediately brings to mind someone like Ben Franklin, where being well-received in Paris means hookers and bathtubs, mostly. (laughs) Um, So while he was there... So, so, you know, nowadays people say, well, I guess not nowadays, like, 20 years ago, people would say hookers and blow. Back then, it was hookers, <laughs> and, hookers bathtubs. and bathtubs. 
Um, and the reason this this is interesting in a where in, where in history are we is that while he's there in France, he has a falling out with Rousseau of the fame, uh, one of the famous sort of founders of social contracts, someone who we'll probably talk about on his own at some point. Um, apparently, Rousseau was a bit of a paranoid, and so they had a, a weird falling out. Um, so. Yeah, and then the last, um, the the one negative thing when I was when I was refreshing myself on Hume's bio that I was like, oh, we should bring this up to like not deify human beings. He was problematic and conservative in some of his views. Specifically, he encouraged the investment in slave plantations, and there's really nothing to be said about that other than it's fucked up. Hume, you shouldn't have done that. Um, so there's that. I want you to be proud of my restraint right now. That you're not making a joke about slave plantations. I, I really want to, and I am not. I am I am stopping myself. I'm trying to be a better person. That's good. We're both just going to accept the fact that David Hume was okay with slavery. And that doesn't mean his ideas were bad, but it means that we should remind him that he's bad next time we see him. And yeah. That he should have done better. I mean, to be fair, name me a white man in that time period that was like, yeah, not slavery, it's not for me. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not for me. I mean, there were there were abolitionists. Um, yeah. Anyway, but yeah. So, but, name me a well-rooted man. Yeah, right, a corpulent one. Um, <laughs> so, moving on to his philosophy, then. Well, now that we've nailed the voidy things all over the place. Uh, so Hume is best known for. I mean, he's known for presenting a lot of really important arguments. But broadly speaking, he's known as a, a exemplar in the skeptical empiricist movement. So combining the ideas of um, critical thinking, especially towards previously agreed upon metaphysics and Wu, uh, with a very rigorous sort of empirical um, experiential approach towards knowledge. So this puts well, this in, would be yeah. pre-Wu, right? Oh no! Yeah, right. There's, there's never, there's no pre-Wu. Oh, oh, I assumed Wu was was more of a contemporary sort of. I mean, it's the term is probably contemporary, but the phenomenon goes back a very long time. Mm, okay. Um, so what I mean is things like he he writes a pretty devastating critique on miracles um, that we can talk mm. about some. Um, so this puts him in the camp with folks like John Locke, um, Francis Bacon, and Thomas Hobbes. Um, who are sort of rough contemporaries of him as well. Um, And basically, uh, he presents a bunch of problems that pissed a lot of people off. You know, like the the great skeptical gadflies, he mostly attacked a bunch of previously held ideas uh, with some pretty effective arguments. Most notably, he pisses off um, Immanuel Kant, who we will spend plenty of time on him. I do have to do a two-parter on Kant. If we're, yeah. Um, but Hume is the person that Kant says woke him from his dogmatic slumber, um, mm. which is to say Hume attacked a bunch of things that Kant thought were really, really important. And he's like, oh, no, you didn't. And then they, <laughs> then they thought about it. Um, so is Hume known more for counter arguments than sort of, ori- I don't know what the term would be, original arguments? or I, um, Is there a term for? I, I, re- I really wouldn't distinguish those too strongly in this sort of context. So he's going to make a bunch of positive claims that are also strong critiques of uh, other positive claims that in some cases you could say are just 
counter arguments in other cases are their own theories. Uh, so I'm trying to remember, uh, maybe you could help, mm -hmm. help me with this. Uh, I'm remembering from some of the philosophy classes I took back in college where we would, you know, we would look at someone's argument about X and then we would look at, at um, critiques of those arguments. So it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong here, philosophy is made up of arguments about certain things and uh, criticisms of people's arguments. And, that, and that's how the, the sort of yeah. body, the, the sort of body of knowledge moves forward. Yes, with the added idea that uh, what is a counter argument in one context is itself its own argument that can be presented. So like utilitarianism can be a form of counter argument to deontology. But then if I'm presenting uh, utilitarianism, then you could present deontology as a counter argument. Oh, I was... So I wasn't. I okay. was using the term critique specifically as opposed to counter argument. Uh -huh. I, I assumed those were different things, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, so I remember when I took philosophy of religion, we mm. would see like you know the teleological argument for the existence of God, mm. and and then we would read three critiques of that argument where it was just a critique of that argument. Absolutely, those those totally exist as well, and those are often contained within those sub arguments. Um, so, so yeah, so so do you see it? Sorry to, to yeah, dig into this real no. deep, but do you see this as three distinct things? Are there because I I all, I know what you're saying where there sometimes there is an argument that has counter arguments in order to support its own argument, mm -hmm. but it seems like there's the arguments, there are counter arguments, and there are critiques. Are those three distinct things in your mind, or is it does it all sort of blend together? I would say there are arguments, and then there are critiques, like you were saying, where. Okay. Right. So colloquially, though, people will say, well, here's my counter argument to that, by which they often mean here's my own position that just contradicts your position. Not, And then they might not distinguish that from what you're saying, which is a critique where you're like saying, let me just take your argument for granted or for a second and let's see what falls apart there, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe if I could, I've got a list here actually of a variety of the things that are tend to be attached to uh, Hume and I can list them out and maybe we can... Yeah. Pick through each of them a little bit more. Um, I love it. So, amongst the things that he attacked, uh, Hume attacked innate ideas. So, in this context, I mean that the there exist ideas in the mind prior to experience. There's a lot of debate and um, epistemology about whether you could take a radical empiricist position and say the mind is literally a tabula rasa, a blank slate, until ideas are put there via experience or there are various kinds of arguments that claim that there is something in the mind before experience ever gets there oh it sounds a lot like a nature nurture kind of argument it is related to that um yeah yeah though i would be a little careful there because i think you could argue that humans have biological nature but there are no ideas in the mind necessarily until experiences arise there it's it it's a, it's a, they are related, but it could get very sort of sticky trying to combine the two sometimes. Yeah, and I guess a good then point, you though. could. Yeah, and then I guess you could get into the weeds on what do you mean by idea. Yeah, mm. and he he really does get into the weeds on what you mean by idea. He divides things into um, impressions that you get directly from sensation versus ideas, which are reflections on those um, perceptions. And he thinks that all ideas come initially from uh, these impressions or from the combination of impressions and some amount of reason that comes afterwards. Mm. 
So, and that's the thing that really made Kant quite angry, um, because Kant wants to argue that there are what he calls synthetic a priori, which are truths that exist in the mind that are necessary to have anything like experience. Um, so what we can talk about that some, but I'll, let me list some of the other things here, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, so he also raises problems with the kind of reasoning that we've talked about before called induction. He raises challenges to the rationality of induction and specifically to the rationality of causality uh, as a sort of very common, widely used form of inductive reasoning. Um, is this um, mm -hmm. is this before or after um, uh, uh, determinism? Uh, determinism has been around for a long time, and he actually okay. addresses determinism specifically. He's actually a compatibilist, by the way. He believes that free will is compatible with um, determinism. Mm. Uh, and and could, could you just briefly go into induction? Yeah, Because so I know induction in terms of electricity, but I know that's not <laughs> what you mean. Yeah, no, so induction is the kind of reasoning where you look at a series of events and make an inference based on those that is not for certain but it is most likely. So if I, you know, if you throw a ball five times and it, it does the exact same arc all five times, I can infer that if you do the same thing again, it's going to move in that same arc. That would be inductive reasoning. It's not I see. necessarily true that it will do it, but it is likely that it will do it. So a lot of right. all of empirical observation would be inductive kinds of reasoning. Great. Um, and what he wants to say is, this kind of reasoning isn't actually reason, it's habit and functional inference, but it's not, strictly speaking, rational in the sense that there is no argument to justify the inductive inference. It is, a, it is not a valid argument, or specifically it's a circular argument, and I can explain that as well if we want. Um, yeah, do it. So... <laughs> this gets this gets really really twisty, right? Because it's a, I'm into it's it. a problem of circularity, and then I'll apply it to causality. Um, so induction is based on the claim the future will be like the past. It doesn't make sense to infer, right? If I see one billiard ball strike another billiard ball, and then the boat that one goes rolling off in a certain angle, and I hit it at the same angle over and over again, right? It only makes sense to infer that that billiard ball is going to do the same thing again if I assume the future is going to be like the past. Does that make sense right. so far? Yep. yep. Right. The only justification I have for the claim the future is going to be like the past is the fact that thus far the future has been like the past. Mm -hmm. But it does not follow without circularity that... Because the future has been like the past, it will therefore be like the past in the future. That's what we're right. trying to prove. So it, there's no way to make the inductive argument work without it becoming circular. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a chicken or the egg kind of a problem. Yeah. And in the problem of causality, he puts it in very stark sort of empirical terms. You never see causality. You only ever see constant conjunction because causality is a claim of necessity. Right. It's to say these two things are connected in a relationship that is unbreakable, but no amount of constant conjunction could ever prove that necessary unbreakability. Whoa, lost me there. Um, causality 
causality is saying one thing will necessarily follow from another. Right. Right. I'm with you there. Mm -hmm. And all we can ever get from induction is that one thing always does follow another. But that we don't ever see the causal relationship happening. Right. This is like mm. you literally you don't see one thing cause another you see one event happen and another event happen and your mind says these events have happened one after another enough times i'm going to infer that this one is causing the other and it tells a story about how they're causing the other but you don't see that story right it's all it's to tell me tell me if i'm off base here it's almost like right you can only perceive now right and now is this constantly mutable thing and it is impossible for us to perceive two points in time sort of simultaneous or, or a, mm -hmm. a linear point of time, right? Mm -hmm. You can't see multiple points of time as a stream mm -hmm. um, like that. Yeah, very, very similar, right? So that kind of he was he was very brilliant at picking apart what we are actually experiencing rather than what we claim we are experiencing after having analyzed it. Right. And if you, so he does the same thing with the self. He says, everyone claims there is this separate self in the Cartesian kind of way at this point in history. Um, but if I look within myself, I don't find any such persistent thing there. All I find are a bunch of constantly shifting, changing, impermanent sensations. I, I don't know why, but I just thought of this. I think someone posted this on the island. Like man realizes he's an NPC. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> maybe, maybe he was just an NPC. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the problem. <laughs> maybe he was just a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you? What else you got? No. Do you notice what that? I'm just curious. Do you notice what that theory of self sounds like from our past episodes? Um. Yes, I try to remember. Uh. Uh. Damn it. Tell me. Buddhism. Yes. Right. Duh. So this idea that uh, the Hindus claims that there are the Atman, this thing within the self, uh, the Buddhists reject this by pointing to the fact that the self appears to be made up of nothing but uh, a bunch of sensations that are all impermanent. And so there is nothing permanent, eternal and unchanging that could be the self. Um, and there's some debate about whether Hume is what people would call a bundle theorist, which is the self exists, but it only exists as a form of sensation or an eliminativist, which is sort of more the idea that the no self exists. I would say he would probably best fit into the Buddhist two, uh, two truth doctrine, right? Which says conventionally the self exists as a bundle of entities, but uh, ultimately, the self doesn't exist because there is nothing that is permanent. So, I yeah, no. This is another tangential yeah. thing. I sort of want to like do a challenge uh -huh. and see if it's possible for a philosopher to make an argument without using an ist. An ist. We could do it. Everything is an ist. I can do, do it. You want to be a philosopher? Put an ist on something. I can do it. I can do it if I want to. I just choose not to. <laughs> That's my choice. You choosest. <laughs> you choosest. <laughs> uh, but I think I do want, I do love that Hume is amongst the closest that the Western philosophers in that period get to Buddhism. 
Um, and I think it's wonderful that Buddhism, Buddhism kind of precedes a lot of these arguments in very uh, interesting ways. Um, despite, and I, th- I think it's possible actually that Hume had a little contact with Buddhist thinking when he was in France. So a little contact. It's good. It's good. You didn't do a cont can't joke. That's that's a yeah, step yeah. up. I'm trying. I'm trying to evolve. Um, so other things we got here, like I said, with the atheism, he made some pretty devastating attacks on uh, specific certain arguments for the existence of God, specifically uh, the teleological arguments or the argument from design and mm-hmm. the argument from miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, when I took I took a philosophy of religion class mm-hmm. and the first three chapters are the first one is. I'm going to get them mixed up, but one is like, I think it's the ontological existence of God, like the... Ontological, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ontological, and then a teleological, or no, one was like, there was the universe, the solar system, and then the earth, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, teleological, obviously. Cosmological. The last one. Uh, say it again? Cosmological? Is that the other one? Something Maybe it was up? that. Mm, I, don't, I don't remember. See, it doesn't matter. Sometimes we don't use ists, sometimes we use uh, illogicals. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know why that's so funny. Um, uh, but yeah, that was the first thing of people. Yeah, that was the first time I was exposed to Hume. Was he? Uh, it was. There was a critique that he wrote on the teleological uh, existence for God. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, and then the last field I think that people tend to strongly associate Hume with is ethics, uh, where he both laid out an argument for ethics as being dominated by the passions rather than by reason and also uh presented a, a pretty challenging um form of the is ought divide that has led to a lot of debate about fact value divides and uh what is and is not real in the world in terms of quality uh, lots of the t- sorts of topics that we've gotten into before um so so what is your, because obviously you're an ethicist, mm-hmm. uh, ethicist. Uh, what is your take on Hume? So my take on Hume is that people get Hume wrong a lot, um, but people have stopped getting Hume wrong a lot as much as they used to. So Hume precipitates a lot of people and a lot of, a lot of people want to call themselves neo-Humeans. And amongst them are my uh, nemesis is the uh, expressivists which are people like A.J. Ayers, who want to say that uh, morality, moral claims are nothing but statements of personal preference usually shouted at someone else as an attempt to try to coerce them into believing what you believe, but they have no truth value. There's nothing true or false about them. So they stand in very stark opposition to the kind of moral realism that I've defended here before. Um, But I think that they misread Hume. So Hume believes that motivation human motivation is derived from the passions right so and this is this is what's really funny a lot of people who will claim they love hume are often the kind of uh ultra rationalist types who will also claim that they are only driven by their reason which is completely incompatible with hume's view of human psychology we're all driven by our passions by our desires by our interests in the what you know, I, i'm sorry to cut you off could could you just maybe enumerate passions? Yeah, by passions, like, I mean, like, anything that isn't uh, logical inferences. It's Like emotion? Yeah, or? like emotions. Emotions, okay. desires, all of the 
the stuff that we would think of as the parts where we experience and express value judgments or or feelings uh, of any sort. So, you know, he's he's going through a very basic kind of he's starting from a very basic kind of psychological place here, right? If I tell you a fact like this person is going to die. That fact is in no way motivating if you do not have a desire or an interest or a passion for saving lives. Right. That makes sense? Yeah. So what he wants to say is reason, he claims reason is the slave to passions, by which he means the passions are going to tell us what we should and and do want, and reason is going to tell us how to get it properly. Now. So so could I... Maybe I could yeah. use a argument to try to understand this. So, like for example, people used to justify slavery, right? Since we mentioned that before, um, as this sort of moral thing, right? That that people of color were lesser beings in the eyes of God, and that was a justification, a a rationale, a reason for that ethical behavior of that time. Mm-hmm. Which obviously clearly isn't, and we've evolved past it, but like something like that. And what Hume would say is anyone who tells you that they're doing it out of pure reason is just hiding the fact that they're doing it just because they want to. Hmm. Right? The passion Sounds comes like first. the Republicans. Right, right. The passion comes first and the reason comes later, is what Hume mm-hmm. tends to argue. Now, it's not here's here's where things get complicated because at other points, and I think this is true to his view. Hume claims that there are better and worse kinds of passions, and there is an importance to teaching the passions and and habituating them towards the right kinds of things in a sort of virtue theory kind of way. So uh, that implies that there is some sort of objective value. So I think it very directly contradicts the emotivist kind of interpretations of him as being about, uh, you know, whatever you're feeling is your moral views. I think he thinks that feelings drive the ship, but they should drive it in certain directions based on certain objective values. And what could those objective values be? It's often... Or how or how are they determined? Yeah, well, in his case, it's things like don't believe anything that isn't confirmed via experience because he's an empiricist. Um, and, you know, don't be, I think, a cruel kind of person or some of the other things that come up for him generally be a compassionate individual despite again the slavery part mm-hmm. um so what i would say is right tying this into the is ought divide hume very much thinks that there are is claims and there are ought claims and that you can't infer a claim like one ought not to kill from a statement like this will kill that person but he also thinks that certain ought claims are objective in important kinds of ways I think that's how I read him. And, you know, we could spend another hour trying to unpack that, but I think we should talk about some of the other things too. I just think it's good to try to sort of correct the record on, or at least do my revisionist moral realist history where I pretend like all my heroes are actual moral realists. Right. Either way. Right. I could be right. It's fine. It could just be that this is my passions and I'm rationalizing it after the fact, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Are they of the Christ? Um, I've been holding on to that and just waiting for the right moment. Oh, the Christ. <laughs> um, 
weird tangent Lou just found a really terrible passion of the Christ musical that gets shown every year apparently on television when here here's a little fun fact so I grew up in a very very uber Christian evangelical area mm-hmm. and when that movie came out I don't know why like me and my friends like went to this like Christian bookstore because it just got built like near where we lived and we're in there like looking around and there was passion of the of the Christ jewelry and I shit you not, one of the pieces of jewelry was a necklace. On that necklace was a stake. Oh, nice. Like, like, uh-huh. Okay, it's one thing to wear a cross because there's a long history of symbolism with the cross and, and what that meant. And even though Jesus apparently died on that cross, you know, I, I can't remember the, the comedian who says, what's the first thing Jesus wants to see when he comes back? It's, a bunch of crosses. Yeah, it's Bill Hicks, at least, and not other people. <laughs> Yeah, but like, it's a stake on a necklace. <laughs> like, I wonder if I could get one with a hammer. Be like, hey, I'm just doing my part here. <laughs> you know, it's teamwork. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, speaking of, um, I think before we run out of time, the last argument that it'd be good to dive, do a little deep dive into is Hume's argument on miracles, which I recommend that people Google and read themselves. It's quite readable, uh, but it's sort of a perfect encapsulation of the effectiveness of his empiricism and his skepticism um so what he basically argues is if we take the idea of miracles miracles are something that appear to if not actually defy the laws of nature okay for something to appear to or defy the laws of nature it has to be an event that has never been seen before or almost never ever ever occurs right like Jesus on toast. Right. We're, we're setting the bar very high here empirically is what we're saying. Okay. Then if you combine that very high bar with the fact that no, uh, as far as anyone has been able to cl- verify, miracles seem to be occurring in the modern age. And this was during his period, of course, where I, I mean, I guess there's always been people claiming some amount of miracles, but uh, basically that most of the really seriously believed miracles were things that happened way back when, right? And then you get to the sort of real meat of the argument where he says, you have to weigh this all out in terms of the potential options, right? Either a miracle occurred, something nature-defying happened, or some people just saw the wrong thing, or some people are lying, And we're not going to say which it is of those two, but either of those is infinitely more plausible than that reality suddenly bended at that one moment in history and then bended back. Yeah, it's you know, it's one of those arguments that I feel like is well known, I think, intuitively and widespread today, but got you fired when he was writing it. Um, But it's just a wonderfully kind of laid out argument where it's just like. Even if someone in the modern age claims they saw a miracle this week, right? The odds that they actually saw a miracle rather than that they misunderstood what they saw or were tricked are zero, effectively zero. Like he points to one one story where a guy supposedly grew his leg back and he says that even... uh, a holy uh, bishop or something who was wandering through that area had to admit it was not more plausible that that actually happened than that someone was lying or confused. (laughs) It's a really great, uh, effective little argument. I think, um, 
you don't see, I guess, miracles. Well, I, I would say, should say amongst academic theologians, you don't see miracles pointed to quite as much anymore. They're all of the like yeah. teleological presuppositionalist kind of types. Um, yeah, or they're over on 34th Street. Right. Uh, but this the good thing about this miracle argument is that it applies to everything, including Santa Claus. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I thought that went over your head. Nope, I heard it. I just had to synthesize it into my uh, shtick. Um, yep. Yeah, this applies to all kinds of uh, um, unbelievable things. ESP would be another one that one might think <laughs> were to the point of zero probability at this point. Uh, yeah. That's great. Um, are there... So are there any... Um, arguments or or critiques that Hume has done that you disagree with? Well, I, like I said, I'm against his compatibilism. I think I have a hard time even making sense of his attempts to combine liberty with necessity in such a way as to make this thing work. I think um, you can take a moral luck sledgehammer to it pretty hard. So that would be one where I might sort of push back on him a little bit. Uh, let's see what else. The, the the innate ideas thing is a really interesting one, and I think we should hold off onto it until we talk about Kant and the synthetic a priori. I think there is some some fascinating back and forth about uh what is necessary for someone to have anything like what we would call experience, and does some of that stuff have to be there before the lights even turn on? Um, this isn't directly connected to Hume specifically, but it, you know, I heard, I heard you sit a couple of times today and, and, uh, back when we did, uh, oh my God, who was our last philosopher? Um, uh, Rawls. Rawls. Yeah. Back when we did Rawls, uh, I think you did it then as well. Uh, and I've heard other philosophers do that as well, where they go, you know, Hume would say X. Um, and it, so it seems to be a tool that philosophers use. And I'm curious to know. Uh huh. Like, is is that like it's clearly a tool in the tool bag, and yeah. I'm curious to know. Yeah, it's funny. More about it. Um, it's it's like a shorthand for I believe it follows from Hume's arguments that mm. is what it really means. It, it you know like uh some I mean sometimes no if I mean if like I was going to talk about Hume the person I would probably put it a little more colloquially, uh, I guess, and say something like, um, you know, Hume made comments or something like this or that in his life. But when we say, you know, Hume would say what I think we often, it's an interesting sort of, you're right, it's a funny little philosophical tick that I have heard before right. as well, that basically right. that basically means this follows from his views, in my opinion. Well, and sometimes, like, it's it's not in the context of a conversation about any one person, right? Like, I've heard philosophers and, and I'm sure you, I can't, I can't point to any circumstances. And I don't think it's a bad thing per se, but like, you know, let's say you and I are debating something and, you know, I, I question something that you said and, and your response would be, well, humans say blah, 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 for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Where it's, it's not even like, you know, it's not you, it, it's like you transport yourself and say, I'm going to now pretend to be someone else mm -hmm. for a moment. And and funnel funnel in a better philosopher than I am, or something, or or a, a well recognized or established philosopher, and use their argument to try to combat your argument. 
Yeah, I think when it's done badly, it's a name-dropping appeal to authority kind of thing. I, I will say when I do it, not to be defensive, my passion's no, running please. ahead of my rationality here, but um, what, what I think I'm going for, and this is often what I go for with references, as everyone will know, I'm a compulsive referencer. Uh, mm-hmm. It's because I want to find out if someone has a shared body of references that I can tap into. So if I were to say something like, Hume might say this, and the other person would say, oh, right, because of this particular theory from Hume, it, it, it al- it's sort of like a, do you know this language or this sub-language kind of oh, yeah. uh, queuing activity, I think. But I think you're right that there are individuals who will, or that it, it, it also that it comes off to people who aren't used to thinking or talking that way as a like, well, Hume would say this, so you can't argue with me. Well, yeah, and and like I think it's used effectively and also almost like a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I think sometimes successfully. I mean, I agree with you where right uh, a shared experience can can be a powerful thing in terms of communicating, right? Like it's why um, you know in the eighties one of the th- ways that women sort of were able to get past some glass ceilings were to learn baseball references or learn sports references because sometimes. You know, these men in management positions would use these sports references and women frequently didn't watch sports. And that was a way that they can understand the colloquial terminology. So, like, I understand that, right, because if you and I are debating something and we both have a deep understanding of Hume and I make some argument, you could say, well, Hume would disagree with that and Hume would say blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So I could see it being a powerful shorthand for sure. But it seems like it is a ultimately flawed tool just because, like you mentioned before about Hume, that right one person's understanding of Hume and another person's understanding of Hume could be contradictory. Um, yes. So what might happen there, it could either be a good thing or a bad thing because it might, in a good way, re-clarify a, a, a fuzzy debate that you were having before by putting it in the context of a debate that someone like Hume might have worked out more effectively. So, right, if you and I are sort of dancing around an is-ought problem and I say, well, let's talk about, you know, the Humean is-ought problem that seems to be inherent in our argument here, um, that could be valuable, though it could also, I think, it, it can also be used sometimes to shift the field of play in problematic ways because now we're debating what would this, you know, fictional per- fictional version of Hume in our heads say about some particular issue or another that he has mm-hmm. no specific statements on. So right. I think we should, I think you're right that we should avoid that. And it, it, yeah, as a, as a, well, sort I, of, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not suggesting that we avoid it. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I really all, all it's just, it's a technique I have heard, you know, from you and from other philosophers and it just seemed to make sense to dig into it a little bit. Yeah, um, because question. I think I think it's valid, right? Like it is, it can be a powerful, valid thing, right? If I make an argument about is oughts, and uh, you could say, well, Hume would say about is oughts X, Y, and Z, um, and if I have in the past agreed with Hume, it can be a way for me to go, oh yeah, it's it's almost like it's almost like these past philosophers have this foundation of argumentation or not argumentation, but I guess a foundation of arguments that are well-established and critiqued. And those could be used as fodder to try to push an argument forward, right? Because Mm -hmm. 
as you know, it can be really easy to dig into the weeds of like, well, wh- what is an idea? Right. And then we could spend three hours mm-hmm. talking and debating what an idea even is. Um, and so it seems to make sense that using the arguments and debates among past people can be a powerful way of not allowing a conversation to get too bogged down. Yeah, or to allow you to, ju- you know, like if you're dealing with someone else where you don't want to play through the first half of the game, basically, and you want to jump ahead to the later levels. Uh, right. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's sort of make like... sure you go down the right pipe. Right, it's like um, uh, Princess Bride, right? Do you know Capafero? Yeah. Ah, right. uh, but you don't know I'm, left, I'm not left-handed. <laughs> so what I'm saying is Hume was not left-handed. That's my point here. Right, right. Um, I, I think we've... We've, we've beat this corpulent horse to death, I think, right? Yeah, no, this is great. All right. So uh, if we didn't get to any of your favorite humeologies, um, send it along to us and we'll try to get <laughs> in on another one at some point. Humeologies. Humevismists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to suffix the shit out of some words. <laughs> You're a suffixist. I'm a suffix- I can't even try to say that word. Suffix. 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 Oh, this is great. Wow. This is great work here, people. We are professionals here at Suffistology? The Void. Uh, let's hear of the week this before I just it's all the way off the rails. Yeah. They're all the rolls. All the rolls. Is that what you think you are? A hero? Saved the world, didn't I? Once. Talk to me after you've done it a couple more times. So our hero of the week this week is uh, truly amazing and also brings up some interesting topics that uh, we had wanted to hit on. So um, this is an individual who until recently was an anonymous donor to uh, a, a female artists over 40, specifically under-recognized female artists under 40. Uh, over 40, excuse me. Over 40, uh, yeah. Via a grant program that was, over the past 22 years, I think, uh, they mm-hmm. put out $5.5 million uh, through this program called Anonymous Was a Woman. And I really like the explanation for the name. It's from a Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own uh, to pay tribute to female artists in history who signed their paintings anonymous so that their work would be taken seriously. I just love that right. they have to... That, that because of them trying to take their work seriously now, it's hard for them to have got get, get appreciation. It's just, it's so voidy. Um, so yeah, the, the statistic that really hit me was um, work by female artists makes up just three to 5% of major permanent museum collections in the United States and Europe. Yeah, it's really brutal. So this um, individual who it turns out lives on um, the Upper East Side uh, has come forward uh, not to, you know, get a bunch of, publicity and attention but because she believes her name is um susan unterberg yeah see i did that one um and she uh she believes that she can be more effective at this point by uh being out as the individual um and and can better advocate for women she is herself a uh female artist over 40 who is unrecognized uh she has a couple of pieces in the uh metropolitan museum on and some Jewish museums. Um, I'm just gonna pause to see if you want to make a joke. No, no, no. Nope. Good. Just so proud of you. <laughs> uh, we're gonna make meta jokes from now on. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and as as you pointed out, there is some pretty depressing statistics for 
how few how little representation there is in a lot of these major museums the one that jumped out to me was that uh the national gallery in london acquired uh an artwork by a female artist for the first time in 27 years which is it seems like too long right it seems like longer than you would think well like the only thing my only small like i guess critical question is it depends right like Museums that are like historically based museums of, of artists from hundreds of years ago, like the fact of the matter is there were less women who were artists, especially women that produced work that was considered quote unquote famous in some way. Um, and so like, like a contemporary art museum, I think could be totally criticized for this kind of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would say that like, you know, if, if you're going to be a museum, if the museums as part of the statistic creations were museums that are like, I don't know, Egyptology museums that have art from Egypt, like who the hell knows what gender of the people were that created the art then? I don't know. I, it just seems I want more information about how the statistics. Were I understand. You'd like generated. to know, you know what I'm saying. What, what, what that what, we want more context for that 27 yeah. years number. The skeptical side of me just wants to know more information about how the statistic was generated. Right. I'm willing to bet that even with that context, um, there there are more female artists out there that they could be acquiring than they are actively acquiring. But I'm, I agree with you Probably. that it could yep. be, for example, that the National Gallery only acquires one piece of art every 30 years. Yeah. I don't know, could, though, but I think that would be some good information. And I'm willing to bet that the answer is voidy. Right. Yeah, I think I think. Uh, the voidy side of me is willing to make the assumption that it is mm -hmm. <laughs> the darker of all possible timelines option. Um, but the skeptical side of me wants to know more information. Yeah. Um, and this does tie in with the time's up uh, me too kind of stuff a little bit. The reason she felt like coming forward was because she felt like women could have more voice right now. Um, but we'd want to talk about something else actually, which was uh, I got into some debates online about, um, a particular meme that was cracking jokes about which particular wine pairs particularly well with uh, individual billionaires uh, mm -hmm. as a development on the eat the rich theory. Um, oh, I don't think I saw that. One. Oh no, it was pretty. It was pretty funny. It was fine. Um, but there was some some pushback about it, and it got into a debate about whether it's true to say that, especially ultra rich individuals, you know, people who are never going to suffer. Um, whether they have a moral obligation mm. to spend a large amount of that money taking care of other individuals. Um, and I think you'd want to talk a little bit about LeBron James as part of this as well. Yeah, uh, I, I sort of wanted an honorable mention for a hero to be LeBron James because I think uh, as, you know, you see the people who grow up in a rich environment seldom do things that are that are charitable uh with the exception of the charitable things being good for them in a very narcissistic way right lebron james grew up in a very poor household and like he doesn't need the fame right he's a basketball player and there's no reason for him to cultivate an image uh and this is something that he's doing that like he didn't really try to make a big deal out of in terms of trying to get media attention about um and really the biggest reason why so many people know about it is because some of the bullshit Trump said about it. But um, 
I think it's great what he's doing, right? The program he's setting up, uh, I think, is fantastic in terms of getting uh, uh, funding for schools and and for students to be able to get tuition-free college. You know, all about it. Love what he's doing there. But to sort of address the question you're asking about, is there a a moral obligation for people who are really, really well off to help people who are not? That is a really good question. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can certainly say it's praiseworthy when they do such a thing um, and that we would encourage them to do so. But some people I find get a little antsy when you go farther and say, and and they have a moral obligation to do so. So, you know, if we're talking about Betsy DeVos buying another yacht versus keeping the yacht she currently has and, and shoring it up more effectively right. and then uh, spending that money on, you know, schools or something, hospitals, something, anything, mm-hmm. um, that there's a moral obligation to do that, that that kind of conspicuous consumption in the face of massive amounts of need is an immoral action. It's not just morally neutral. It's not do it if you like, but if you don't, that's your choice. It's your money. Yeah. I So I'm going to take an unusual position, I think. I'm going to take the position that I don't think people who are ultra affluent are morally obligated to uh, be charitable with their money. Uh, I do think they are morally obligated in a nation to do so. Does that makes sense? I, I don't think it is their moral obligation as a person to do so, but as a person living in a nation, I think, does that make sense? I, I don't know if what I'm saying is even making sense to myself. Um, make, make me sound smarter. <laughs> Still bought my give, position. Give it to me again. Give it one more time. Like, okay. If the, que- the question is, you know, is there a moral obligation for an ultra-affluent person uh-huh. to be charitable? Right. I would say no. I would say it is their obligation to do so for a nation, right? So not for not for specifically lower class people, but specifically for the benefit of the nation as a whole. Does that make does that help? I mean, I guess that could be a different it could be a different view, but I'm not sure why it would be better to say it was for the nation versus for the people, for the individuals. I mean, like there's people who will say, well, you can make the argument that they should do it for their own sake because they'll be better off in a society where the wealth is more redistributed. But yeah, uh, I mean, is that what you're sort of getting at? Well, it's more about like, um, you know, people who are of the lower class are not in a financial place to be able to support the nation at a nation level. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you you take. A certain percentage from uh, the lowest class people, the, that amount of money is not going to be enough to support the like infrastructure and things that everyone in the country uses, mm-hmm. right? This this is the more I think uh, uh, libertarian, classical libertarian model of uh, uh, a, a economic system where the ultra rich people. It's a way of almost like counterbalancing capitalism in a way where like. If people get like what's happening now is people are getting so rich and taxes are dropping so much for the rich that all they really do is take that money and hoard it or they give it to charities in order to get tax breaks. Uh, And that is their justification for doing so. And I would say that there's a moral obligation for them to do so 
in order to help everyone, like in a more utilitarian way, I guess. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think that they have, I, I think you can put it in terms of their obligation to reduce the suffering of specific individuals or their obligation to preserve the functionality of the overall system that they are themselves taking taking benefit from. Um, I think there are lots of different ways in which you can ground this obligation that it seems to me is pretty readily apparent. And it was weird because it's, it was a pushback from someone who is sort of on the liberal side of things. And it, it sort of, I think, takes a bit the form of like, some folks get a little antsy when you start using terms like ethical obligation. But if you were mm-hmm. to be like, you know, isn't Elon Musk kind of a dick for commenting on Twitter about how he has all this money and doesn't know what to do with it? Like, isn't that a dick move? And isn't not giving that money to charity then a super dick move? Like, <laughs> but it, but is is by dick move? Do you mean that there is a, a, a moral outrage? If, if that's what you mean by it? Like, I don't know. I think, I think, um, the bar should be pretty high when we talk about a moral obligation, right? I think, I think, uh, you know, if you're walking down the street and someone in front of you like falls and and breaks their leg, I think you have a moral obligation to at least call nine one one, right? Uh, uh, and I think that is a high bar that everyone can meet. Um, I think it is. I think it is a good thing, right? I'm not saying it's a bad thing for the motivation for an affluent person to give for lower class people. Uh, I think that is a good thing, but I don't think it's a morally obligated thing. But I think the motivation being not just to help out lower class people, but to help everyone. I don't know. I think that is a, a higher bar. So what then do you think about our particular hero of the week who's giving specifically to women. Do you feel like well, I, that it's okay in these, in these sorts of cases to give charity sort of directly to one group specifically with a specific goal of balancing yeah. out representation? Yeah. I, I don't see any problem with mm-hmm. any charity having a specific, very specific goal and charities that have a much broader goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, foundation beyond belief is, is one that I really like and, all, all they do is help distribute money to organizations that do not proselytize, mm-hmm. right? And they, they are really just a funnel to other charitable organizations in order to help them, right? There's also, I can't remember the name of the group, but the one that like just helps people. Like if you are really poor and you are going to have trouble paying your water bill, you can go to this place and someone can donate and pay your water bill for you. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I I don't think there's anything wrong at all with a charity being focused mm-hmm. or having a focus. Cool. I think we're running a little short, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, this was good times. Um, hope you all enjoyed this uh, Better Know a Philosopher, and we will have another um, poll up again soon for that. And we will catch you all next week. And think, Thanks. Yep, thanks so much. GW here going to do my best Marlboro Man impersonation. We would like to thank our new patron, Just Some Guy. We would like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rubinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, Corey Johnson hosts the Brainstorm Podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic, Campquest.org, 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 Mr. Nobody, Scott John Harrison at Shaded Sprider. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. 
As always, remember, you are the void, the void is you. 